Good to see you here tonight. We have three Wednesdays until we um, we break for Christmas. So we only have three. I was kind of painting it all out, and I was thinking, all right, I think we might be able to finish this um, by the time we have the Christmas break, and then tonight happened, <laughs> and we won't do that. I was hoping to get on through to verses 19, which I think your outline still reads that way. We aren't, we're only getting through 14 and 15, so we're, we're do, only doing that. I did the prep for both, and just uh, there's just uh, so much in this, and since we were on prophecy on Sunday and prophets, there's uh, some tie-in here that will, will help us out with that, so we're going to take a look at that. If you're up on Facebook, I put this up there for you. How could a prophecy given over 5,000 years ago have application in the days of Jude when its target is still future? Since we're looking at the prophets, this might be a good thing for us to get some insight on this. So Jude uses this prophecy of Enoch to speak against those who were creeping in the church with the intent to cause it harm. Is this a right application of prophecy when the prophecy is spoken by Enoch 5,000 years ago about a time that is not yet? Is it a right application for Jude to apply this prophecy to the people he is seeing. So, with that, let's go over to our two verses of Scripture. And this is uh, Jude chapter 1, only one chapter, but Jude uh, 14 and 15. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed, in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now Enoch was the seventh from Adam. If you look at the genealogies of Genesis, you will see that Enoch was alive for about 300 years while Adam was still alive. So they had about 300 years of direct interaction between the two. So the things that Enoch learned He could have learned directly from Adam. Adam learned it from our Lord. Adam passed it down to those those people that were there and more than likely passed some things down to to Enoch. He says here, Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute, execute judgment on all. This is the purpose for which he is coming here is to execute judgment on all. Now this word we get judgment from is the Greek word crisis. And you can of course hear the English word we get from that. So I looked up some things on this. First off, Vines has this as a separating or a decision. This word would be a separating or a decision. So basically you're making a decision and separating different ones. We get our word crisis from it because we see it as a decisive moment. A crisis would be a decisive moment. So they're coming to cause a separating on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now you can hear the repetitive word in there, can't you? (laughs) Four times this word ungodly is used. It is not a bad translation. 
It is, it is the same Greek word that is used. Sometimes it's used in the noun form. Sometimes it's used in the verb form. And at one time it is used in the adverb form. I think actually two nouns, one verb, one adverb, if I remember that correctly. When he says here that ten thousands of his saints are coming, the word is the, the Greek word, murias. We get our word mirad from it. It is basically not ten thousand. It is an indefinite number, but they write it in as ten thousands, uh, and, and I uh, make it plural so that you're just saying a very large number. But understand, this word does not convey that there's ten thousand or multiples of, of ten thousand. We're looking at a uh, basically an indefinite number of uh, of, of uh, those that come with him. So this you could certainly say just as easily tens of millions or a larger number like that. It's a huge number. It's a uh, a myriad, a very large number of, of people. So he's coming back here with ten thousands or, or a myriad of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. Now, ungodly way is not in the Greek. The word committed is, but it is the verb, or the, the verb form of the noun we're using. And so they do this in the English because we don't have the same word that the Greek does. So they use multiple words to translate it. But understand, sometimes when you see italicized words, they're saying these are inserted. These are not inserted the same way those are. This is what the word means. It means to do something in an ungodly way. That is what the verb means. So we need multiple words in order to accomplish that translation. So even though if you have a Bible that italicizes those words that are inserted, if they do italicize those, it's it's really incorrect because it's not a word that's inserted. An inserted word to me is a word that's not there, but we're going to put this word there so that you understand it better. And most times that, that usually is helpful, but it's also helpful to know that it was inserted, which the italicized word will tell you. But if any of your words are italicized in your translation, this is part of the Greek word. And that's where that, that ungodly comes from. So we have four times he is citing these folks as ungodly. So we certainly get the idea that these are ungodly, these are not of God people. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds. The word there to convict or convince, depends upon your translation, means to rebuke so as to bring the sinner to either conviction or confession of his sin. This is a, this is a rebuke for the direct purpose of bringing them to a place of conviction or confession of, of their sins. Well, when the Lord comes back, it's basically either you're in or you're not. And that's where we have the judgment, the separating that, that goes on. Now, when the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints, when does the Lord come with 10,000 of his saints? Does the Lord come with 10,000 of his saints when he shows up as the angel of the Lord? No. Does the Lord come with 10,000 of his saints when he shows up as Messiah in the birth of Christ? No. Only one time that we have in the word of God that he comes with 10,000 of his saints. And that's at the end of the tribulation. 
So what you have here is that Enoch is prophesying before the flood of Noah. Probably somewhere around a thousand years into human history. He is prophesying about the end times in telling you that the Lord will come with ten thousands of his saints. Now the the word there is saints as much as we can get it. It's tough to do a word study on anything from Enoch because we don't have the original language that he wrote it in. He probably wrote it in Hebrew or maybe another language that was uh, they were speaking before before that. But whatever it was, we don't have it. It's gone. And even uh, some of the other uh, translations that would have come out, uh, they're gone. Basically, we had the book of Enoch uh, from the, the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls were taken. And it was, um, it was, this book was very well known in the, uh, second century of the church. I think even into the third century of the church. You'll see some references to it and then it disappears. And we don't see it for about 1500 years. We don't hear about it. We don't see anybody who's familiar with it. And then they made the discovery, I believe in the 1750s something, it was discovered and then it sat after it was discovered, just kind of sat around for uh, until about 1850. Somewhere around there is when somebody got around to translating it. And then they translated it, and that's how we, we have it there. But that's about 1,500 years where we had uh, no one really studying this, no one knew it. But it was so well known in Jude's day that he quotes from it, and other people quote from it. And people who have gone through and made a study of the book of Enoch has said much of the New Testament has been influenced by this particular book because of some of the phrases that they use. One of the phrases that is used, and there's a little bit of a question on this, but if you remember when the the Lord spoke from heaven, and he said, this is my beloved son, listen to him, or hear him. What it will say. Well, Matthew and John used, or Matthew and Mark, I forget which two, two of, the, two of them, they used the terminology, this is my beloved son. But in some of the manuscripts of Luke's writing, it doesn't say that. It says, this is my chosen son. Some of the translations have, this is my beloved son for Luke. And so you will find that uh, uh, different translations will translate it different ways. Some, some will say, and when they translate Luke and his version here, will use the word chosen if they go back to that particular one. But that is going back to Enoch and the prophecies that he had because this was the word and a terminology that he used for him. So whether Luke did that, um, uh, I kind of see more of a consistency between all three because this is the, the words of the Father coming down to the Son. They're supposed to just be writing down what they, what they had heard. So uh, to me, it would probably be more of a of a idea that this is my beloved son. I think I would probably go more along those lines. But you'll see the word chosen used a number of times. But we're going to take a look at this prophecy. I went back through some of the notes in previous years and I know when we went through Hebrew we took some things, a look at some of the things with Enoch and I wanted to make sure we weren't just duplicating some of the things that were there. Enoch has a lot of writing. There's, there's quite a bit of stuff that's there. It seemed to me we were in different chapters before. 
but we'll take a look at what what has gone on here in these ones. So I wanted to read to you some from the book of Enoch. And it depends on where you go and who breaks this down. And I'm not sure why there's a discrepancy on this. But I found this going two different ways. And the verses that I'm going to read for you here come from Enoch chapter 1. Book 1, chapter 1. And either, I, I'm going to be reading from my, the one that I copied from, is having Enoch ch- chapter 1, 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. That's the extent of the, of the chapter. Some have chapter 1, 1 through 8. And then start with chapter 2 for verse 9. It just has a one, one content for that chapter. I don't really see why they would have divided it, but just so you know, there are, there is, um, some discrepancy on that. So you may see some things about chapter 2 for this particular reference that Jude has. Jude and what he quotes comes out of verse 9 of chapter 1, or as some put it, chapter 2 and verse 1. So if you go looking for it, I just want to make sure that you, you're, you know what to look for, that you're looking for both of those things. But here in verse 1 from the book of Enoch, the words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous who will be living in the day of tribulation when all the wicked and godless are to be removed. Now let's just stop right there for this. Remember how long ago this was written? Much of what we have in Revelation on the tribulation comes from Paul, which is New Testament. As far as the rapture and and, uh, things that are, are going on with that. Uh, Daniel gave us a whole lot of insight into the tribulation period, which of course is much later than than Enoch. But here is Enoch, before any of this goes on, he's calling the people alive during the day the elect. When are the Jewish people called the elect? in the Old Testament. That's not a reference that they usually have for them. But that is a reference that is given for the church. Isn't it interesting that his his terminology changes to almost church age vocabulary? Wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous. Now they are righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. who will be living in the day of tribulation. They will be living in the day of tribulation when all the wicked and godless are to be removed. This was what happens at the end of the tribulation. All the wicked and all the godless are removed from the earth. And here Enoch is prophesying about this so many years before. And he took up his parable and said, Enoch, a righteous man, whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens, which the angels showed me, and from them I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation. Not for this generation. He's not talking about the flood that is to come. He's not talking about that kind of a judgment. He says this is not for this generation. But for a remote one, which is for to come. 
Concerning the elect, I said, and took up my parable concerning them. The Holy Great One will come forth from His dwelling, and the Eternal God will tread upon the earth, even on Mount Sinai, and appear from His camp. Now that is, is bracketed in, in my translation. I could not figure out why they bracketed it. I wasn't sure if that meant something about the translation or what. But anyway, I have it in mind as being bracketed. And appear in the strength of His might from the heaven of heavens. And all shall be smitten with fear. What happens during the tribulation? What does John continually talk about? The fear that they are all, all smitten with. And the watchers shall quake. Now, the watchers could be a couple of things. But John, in his description of the tribulation, is describing people up in heaven who are doing what? Watching. <laughs> We're up there watching what is going on. John is in heaven with the saints, and they are watching the events unfold. Very interesting. Especially since when people in Enoch's day died... Where did they go? They went to Abraham's bosom. It may not have been called Abraham's bosom then. It was called something, probably something else. But they did not go to heaven. So he's prophesying something that, as far as he knows, doesn't happen. This is where you, it's, it's tough to be a prophet. When you are a prophet, you have to say exactly what God said. We've got a few more notes on this later on. I'll jump ahead of myself too much. We'll, we'll get there in a moment. And the watchers shall quake, and great fear and trembling shall seize them unto the ends of the earth. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, and shall melt like wax before the flame. Now when in the Word of God does it talk about mountains and hills being melted and being flattened during the tribulation, specifically during the second half of the tribulation. And the earth shall be wholly rent in sunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish. And there shall be a judgment upon all men. But with the righteous, he will make peace and will protect the elect. And mercy shall be upon them, and they shall all belong to God. And they shall be prospered, and they shall all be blessed. And He will help them all, and light shall appear unto them, and He will make peace with them. Now those are the verses that come before what Jude quotes, but Jude doesn't quote all of that. He only quotes this. Now, uh, if you if you have your Bible handy, you can uh, compare what Enoch has compared to what Jude has because it's different. So here is what Enoch writes. And behold, he cometh with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed. And of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now when Jude writes this, 
He says, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There are some differences between what Jude writes and what Enoch writes. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, first off, it could be that the copy of what we have of Enoch is corrupted. And what Jude has was more authentic. That could be one way that you would that you go. Another way you could probably possibly look at this is Enoch's writings didn't make scripture. Jude's did. Perhaps Jude had to make corrections. I don't know. I can't really tell you which way that it would that it would go, but Enoch's writings were also translated into several languages before the copy that we have, uh, that we read, was in existence. So there's a couple of language changes. When you change from one language to another, you can lose some things. We don't have the ability to go back to it, to it directly. With the Word of God, we have the ability to go back to the Hebrew. We have the ability to go back to the Greek. With Enoch's writings, we don't have the ability to go back to the original language because those documents, those writings were lost. But he puts it here that, Behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones. Of course, they would be holy ones because they were the church. They would have already gone through the judgment seat of Christ. And they would be holy. To execute judgment upon all. And is not the church coming back with Jesus? To execute judgment upon the earth. And to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed. Now, before we go on with this, I just wanted to read this to you just so you can get a little bit of an idea of some things here. This is, from what I'm reading from, this is Enoch chapter 2. If you find a copy that has verse 9 as chapter 2 verse 1, then you would be reading from Enoch chapter 3. But understand, this is the verses that come directly after the ones I just read you. So however you read it, these are the ones that are coming next. Listen to some of these things that Enoch wrote here. Observe ye everything that takes place in the heaven, how they do not change their orbits and the luminaries which are in the heaven, how they all rise and set in order each in its season, and transgress not against their appointed order. Behold ye the earth, and give heed to the things which take place upon it from first to last, how steadfast they are, how none of these things upon earth change, but all the works of God appear to you. Behold, in the summer and the winter, how the whole earth is filled with water and clouds and dew and rain lie upon it. I want you to see two things from here. First off, he talks about a universe and its order with orbits and so forth. It would seem that during the days of Enoch, they had a greater understanding of the order of the universe than the people who came after him. That could be because with Noah, most of this knowledge was lost. It seems that a number of people did have this knowledge outside of Enoch, not just Enoch, but if you look at some of the writings uh, before the flood and some of the things that people were doing, they seem to have had a greater understanding of the universe and its order. But a lot of that was lost 
and even people in this century, when they would begin to try and bring us back to the knowledge of the order of the universe, they were persecuted for their beliefs. We are not necessarily progressive in our knowledge. We regress quite a bit when Adam, Enoch, and others were lost. When they died, when the flood came and took some of the other ones away, a lot of that knowledge was was wiped out. But they had this. They were, they were working with this. And an interesting part here, Enoch, you will remember, had a son. <clears throat> He's named his son. Anybody remember the name of Enoch's son? One of his, his sons anyway? His most famous? Methuselah. Methuselah had a prophetic name. It will come when he is gone, or some kind of derivative of, of that. Uh, and he, of course, died in the year of the flood. Not by the flood, but when he died, that was the year the flood was coming. And if you work out the genealogies, all those boring things that no one likes to, to read through, when you work all that out, you find out that he dies in the year of the flood. So his, his name means it will come. And people may be asking him what's coming. Well, he, he probably knew because I'm sure his father knew. If Enoch knew all this stuff, he probably knew what was coming and even probably helped to talk, to help Noah out. Noah wasn't just out there on a, on an island being told this is coming. Enoch is probably there. Yes, it's coming. He, he probably, some of his prophecies, some of the things that he had, uh, had, had given probably helped Noah in, uh, staying strong on this particular avenue because of course there would be people who would think that it would be, be foolish. But notice what he says here. Enoch was, was dead before the flood. Way before the flood. Because his son makes it all the way up to the flood. Verse 3. Behold the summer and the winter, how the whole earth is filled with water, and clouds and dew and rain lie upon it. How does he know to discuss rain if it never rained? Well, it would seem that it may not be quite as it's we've thought that there was no rain on the earth, but that the earth was watered by a means other than rain. But rain could have been falling. And they may have known what rain was. It seems that Enoch knew what it was and even refers to it. If you're going to put something like rain in a prophecy, don't people have to have a way to understand it. So Enoch is working from a point of knowledge that we may not consider that he has. But certainly he does, he does seem to have that. I want you to see that chapter 1 contains some things in it. The first thing is the time of trouble, as it's translated in some ways, or tribulation. He has that understanding thousands of years before it is divulged to the other prophets. We have a judgment upon the wicked. Not the flood, but a judgment upon the wicked that he that he predicts. He talks about the elect. He uses that terminology. And that terminology is picked up by many a New Testament writer. We have the watchers. This could refer to those in John's vision watching the scene. We have the mountains melting. 
these are things that that he just he puts this is his first chapter <laughs> this is his first prophecy that he's writing and look at these things that are in there uh, now Enoch was rejected as a as a Bible book but was still held in great respect by many in, in especially in Judea Jews, Jude quoted from it Hebrews um, had some a lot of respect for Enoch uh, other people have quoted from things that, that Enoch had written if you get into some of the other books the Bible or the sorry the books that are not in the Bible uh, Barnabas I believe had an epistle and he used uh, a reference to some of Enoch's work and uh, there were other ones as well that would pull this his, his writings were held in great respect even though so many thousands of years had passed between him and when this was going on Let's go on here with um, verse 14 again. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, saying... Now he prophesies about these men. We're back over here talking about the spots or basically the uh, hidden rocks, the hidden hazards that were there. Judas talking, is taking what was prophesied before the flood of Noah about a time that is still future and applying it to his day 2,000 years ago. Now, whenever you get into the area of prophecy, whenever you are going to be a prophet who speaks a word of prophecy, it is imperative that you only speak what God said. You cannot alter it. You cannot change it. Or you will not be a faithful prophet. It is not the same with the teacher. A teacher, pastor, an apostle, an evangelist, they will take a concept that God has given them and explain it. Not so with a prophet. We went over this on Sunday. A prophet needs to speak what God says exactly. There's a couple of reasons for that. I don't think we got into these on, on Sunday, but it's a good opportunity for us to get into them now. First off, a prophecy that comes from God is based solely on God's knowledge. A prophecy that comes from God, it is based solely on the knowledge that God has. A person who is a teacher, a person who is a pastor, a person who is an apostle, and a person who is an evangelist will teach based upon what God has shown them and what they know. It will be a combination of those things. Hopefully they're increasing in what they know. But a prophet is not this way. When they are operating in the office of a prophet, they must speak exactly what God says because what God says is based on what God knows. It will go beyond your understanding as a prophet. It will go beyond your understanding. When God speaks something, it will go beyond what you can know. And beyond what you do know. And you must speak what you do not have knowledge of. That is a difficult task for anybody. It's a difficult task for a teacher, for a pastor, for an evangelist, and for an apostle. They are used to speaking from what they know. What God has shown them. What God has revealed to them. Not what they have reasoned out or figured out, but what God has, has shown them. 
But a prophet, they what they receive goes beyond what they can understand. They cannot understand all that is in the prophecy. It goes beyond them. They must therefore just speak it as God gave it to them because if they mix their own understanding, they'll mess it up. I put that in there next. If you try to speak it as you understand, you will take away its power, meaning, and effectiveness. If I take something that is up here on this level, this is God's understanding, and my understanding is down here, and I take this and bring it down to what I say and say that, I have messed up the prophecy. It is no longer God's prophecy. It is now my teaching, my speaking, my whatever. I've messed it up. We went through the book of Ezekiel. We showed you some of the places where Ezekiel had to make a decision. Either do what I understand, speak what I understand, change what God said maybe a little bit, make it make it easier, make it more palatable. Maybe if I just say it like this, they will receive it better. But Ezekiel didn't give in to the temptation. He stayed with it. And he did it exactly. In fact, we showed you the one prophecy that I believe really changed the ministry of, a, of Ezekiel. And it was after that that he got some of the more in-depth prophecies, uh, including some of the ones about the surrounding nations, that to this day people say it's impossible that anyone would have prophesied. But he didn't, and in that particular prophecy, the prophecy against Tyre, he had to speak things that went beyond his understanding. In fact, his understanding would have said that can't happen. But he spoke it as God gave it to him because God had learned I can trust him to speak what I'm saying. Daniel was exhorted, write it down as you see it. Moses was told when he was up in heaven, write this down, do exactly what you see. Don't change it. It's imperative because God's understanding on things is much higher. And so we have to begin to do those, do those things as, as he gave them to us. God instructed Moses, strike the rock, speak to the rock. I don't know that Moses ever had the understanding of what that was supposed to be. Strike the rock, speak to the rock. That it was going to be strike the body of Christ, speak to the body of Christ. I don't think he ever had that understanding. But he acted on his own and he changed what God had said. And you know the punishment that came in for him for that. So if you try to speak as you understand something, you will take away its power, its meaning, and its effectiveness. We cannot do it. Now, in this prophecy, this prophecy is given, and Jude has this understanding. He knows from this prophecy that this prophecy is about the tribulation period. This prophecy is about when Jesus comes back with his saints for the second advent. Is Jude expecting the second coming of Jesus? Is Jude expecting the second coming of Jesus in his day? Well, I'll put it to you this way. Is Paul expecting the second coming of Jesus in his day? Yes, he was. I don't get from Paul's understanding of this that he expected it to be very long. He sure didn't expect it to be 2,000 years. They got surprised. It was a lot longer. 
if Paul expected the second coming of Jesus to be soon, and very soon, certainly Jude could have expected it to be soon and very soon, and therefore he could see this prophecy as speaking to the end times, which he felt he was in. Now, they knew that they weren't in the tribulation. Paul made sure that people understood that. No, we're not in the tribulation yet. This has to happen first. The church has to get pulled out. When the church gets pulled out, now we know. So Jude knows I'm not in the tribulation, but I expect the tribulation to be coming up. He expected it to be to be happening. So, when Jude puts this scripture... This, I'm sorry, when Jude puts this prophetic word from Enoch into the scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because the people, men of old wrote as they were inspired by the Spirit of what to write. So that would tell us that since Jude is in the word, that it's the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write this prophecy in about his day and the evil people that were around him. Because it made scripture. If what he is writing is a wrong application of it, wouldn't it be prevented from being in scripture or he just wouldn't have been led to to have put this in there. But he was led to be put this in there. And he equates, these men are equated with the evil of those yet to come. He saw these false teachers, these ones who crept in on the same level as of evil as those who are going to be in evil in the tribulation period. And that was okay by God. Now, if you saw the men that are around you, the people, it seems like mostly what he was referring to here was men, um, I know we all want to get, you know, the he, she, men or women or whatever it was. But it's, it, it seems like Jude is talking about some men. He's talking about some guys. We know that there were some women who did some things in the church and that were off. But I think what he has his sights on, he said his sights on are some men in particular who worked their way into the church and were doing this particular stuff. He said these men are equated with the evil of those yet to come. It's what he's doing. And some in the church will partner or side with them. If you saw these people creeping into the church, the church not seeing them, not recognizing them, and what you saw put them on the same level of evil as the men that Enoch talked about, and the evil that comes in during the tribulation period, would that elevate this in your mind? And would you go from a place, as we saw he said in the beginning, that he was casually going to write them a letter, encouraging them in their faith to the point where it was elevated and he went after this because he saw this as urgent and something he had to take care of. Can you see why it raised to such an urgency in his mind? These false brethren can be anyone the church accepts. These false brethren could be anyone that the church accepted in his day and in our day. Anyone the church accepts 
as true or not a threat. I gave you some blank line, but I was running out of space. So you can write these in if you want to or not write them in, whatever you want to do. But these false brethren can be anyone the church accepts as true. I got three things here. True or not a threat. I accept them. I accept these false brethren as true or I accept them as not a threat. They're just someone who has some different ideas. Either one of those things would fit the bill for this. Second thing, having wisdom or valuable points of view. Anyone that the church accepts, any false brethren that the church accepts as having wisdom or valuable points of view, viewpoints. And third, these false brethren can be anyone the church accepts as a help and not harmful. So they could be true, but not a, or not a, just not a threat. They could be a help or not harmful. Now there's a difference in there. One is I, I see them as true, but just because someone is true doesn't mean I see them as a help. I can also see people as a help but not necessarily true. You see that? Alright, they're not completely, I don't think they're on board, but boy, they are a help. I'm sure glad they're part of the body of Christ here with us because they are a help for us. But, uh, you know, not everything they do is really, is right. They're still growing or we may see them in that way. If these three things are true and the church accept these false brethren, we're opening the door for these things to happen. Apparently, these changed the views of those in Jude's day. These people who came in, they were seen as true, or they were seen as not a threat, were able to come in and change the view of the people in Jude's day, and this is why he is concerned about it. Because they're coming in, they're not being seen as as the hazards that they are, but Jude sees them as hazards. Other people don't see them as hazards, they're saying, no, they're... They're not a hazard. They're okay. They're, they're actually helpful. I'm not sure if they're true yet, but I'm still willing to listen to them, find out if they're true. But I don't see them as a threat. I see them. They have some wisdom. They have some valuable viewpoints on some things, and we need to hear them. But they were changing the views of some of those in Jude's day. This, this caused Jude some great concern. In our day... We're going to see people like this have already snuck in, have already come into the church. This is why Jude is written written in the Bible and it's here for us because what happened in Jude's day would be happening over and over again. And certainly now, as we get closer to the end times, the final end times, we know that these deceivers will increase and get stronger. So this is going on. In our day, they have changed the view, church's view on. I wrote down a number of topics. You can write down as much of these or none of these as you want to. But my list goes on for, for a little while. But people who are viewed by the church as either not a threat, not harmful, having wisdom, or having some valuable points of view, have caused the church to change its view on marriage. Before, you could not have 
you would not have seen in the church a marriage outside of that between a man and a woman. Now, not only are you seeing that, but you're seeing people who are not in a marriage sanctioned by God actually heading the church. People who have crept in have changed the church's view on abortion. What once was seen as abortion is the taking of innocent life is now looked at as, well, this is the right of the woman. This is a personal choice. This is, I'm not talking about the world, we're talking about those in the church. People have crept in and have been able to change the church's viewpoint. And, you know, you could say this to people in church today and they'll immediately write you off. Because this attitude has gotten into the church. So much so, and by people that have crept in, seen as not harmful, having some wisdom, and they have been able to effectively change this viewpoint, even so much so that the Catholic Church, who was the probably the number one opponent to, to abortion, is now accepting of, of these things in marriage and these things in abortion. And this is what was going on in Jude's day. I don't know these particular issues. We want to hit two of them. Adultery and fornication. What was considered to be adultery and fornication that the church would not embark in is now not only commonplace, but you have ministers who are engaged in adultery and fornication and it seemed to be okay. We have leaders in the church, unmarried leaders in the church engaging in sexual fornication who feel perfectly fine and still going on and doing their leadership things. Why? Because people crept in and changed their viewpoint. Because there's no way that you can prove it from Scripture, but yet people in the church have this viewpoint now. Shall we continue? Language. What was considered to be foul language and inappropriate by a Christian person decades ago is now spoken from the pulpit. Why? Because people crept into the church and had the ability to sway opinions. We have in the Word of God that God created them male and female. And in the church you now have people who are accepting of more than than, than the two genders. Not everybody is male or female. I think it was, I, I put it up on, on one of those Facebook posts that I, memes, I just thought it was, it was comical, but it, it's one of those things that you laugh and you cry at the same time. Is that if, if there are really all these different genders, I don't know how many, 8, 10, 38, whatever number that they, they come up with, that they want to say, how is it that people, um, that, they go and they uncover skeletons, you know, and they, they find ancient civilizations, ancient civilizations, how come they only find males and females? How is that possible? They go out and they uncover some bones and they'll immediately begin to tell you this was a female of age around 30. This was a male. How, how can they do that? If all these other genders are there. But you see, God said, I created a male and female. Other people crept into the church and pretty soon the church began to say, well, you know, I think there might be some others if God created a male, they're male. 
if God created them female, they're female. But you see, other people came in and they began to tell them, you're not a male. Uh, if you want to be a girl, then just just decide that's what you want to be. And you go ahead. And we've got teachers that are hitting their students outside of the parents' knowledge and confusing them. See, people are creeping in. We have people that have crept into the church and they have changed our view of satanic forces. Some have changed the view so that we see them as non-existent. And others have changed the view so that we see them as all-powerful. Certainly Hollywood has done its best to show us that demonic forces are far more powerful than anything God has. And we know that there's nothing, nothing close to that. And yet, because of Christians' acceptance of Hollywood and some of the horror films that they do, you put some Christians into a scary situation, scary house, and they begin to become fearful of demonic things. Should a Christian be fearful of demonic things? No, indeed. They are under your feet. They are not all-powerful. Surely are not scary. We have people that have crept into the church to change the viewpoint that God is the only, that Jesus is the only way to God. That there is a singular way to God. And many churches have accepted that there may be other religions that also have a way to God. I've heard people from the pulpit even say that. You won't hear me say that, and I know there's many others that you won't hear say that. Jesus is the only way to God. But there is pressure, there is People that creep in, they want to cause this to, to come about. There are people that have crept into the church that have convinced the church that man's good is enough. The righteousness that we're able to produce, this is good enough. And certainly we see this, that uh, when we get to heaven, we want to, well, I never did anything really bad. Man's good is enough. We have people that have crept into the church that have compromised our idea that the Word teaches that we need to meet together. And way before they started closing churches down or trying to close churches down, we had people who were more content just staying at home because, well, I've been hurting churches so I, I just don't need to go. And people have come along, crept in and told them, you do not need to go. Your church can just be you at home. And they were doing that before. And we got so much into that that when governors started to close down churches and prevent people from, from meeting, though you could have a hundred people into a Home Depot, you couldn't have twenty people in a church. And people were okay with it. People have crept into the church and have changed our viewpoint of the role of the fivefold ministry. And what a pastor is supposed to do is no longer what the Word says he's supposed to do, but what the world expects him to do. What the world expects him to teach. How he expects him to behave. Same thing for the prophet, evangelist, teacher, apostle. The role has been, has been changed. 
And all you got to do is look at look around at churches. Churches are not run by pastors. They're run by boards. Corporations are run by boards, not not churches. God never started a church to be run by a board. He started a church to be run by a pastor. But you look around this country, most of the churches are run by boards. Board members are not the called one. They are not the one that was given the grace. They were not the one that was given the calling. They are not the one that God speaks to. God speaks to the pastor. But all over you have many a pastor who is afraid of getting fired if they don't do the things that the board wants. And so they don't do what God wants, they do what the board wants. And they're compromised. The inerrancy of Scripture used to be that the church, whatever the Word of God says, it's, it's so. But now we've compromised that. And not every church believes that what the Word says is what the Word means, is what God means. We need to adapt it to our day. We need to change it. Not all Scripture is necessary for today. I, I need to go through and pick and choose which parts that I, I want. There's a whole schools of thought that decide to pick out which ones are good and which ones are bad as far as Scriptures are concerned. Translations have come out because we don't like the way this is worded so we're going to just have our own translation and change it all. Morality has changed. What was considered to be moral behavior before is no longer considered necessary because people have crept into the church who were seen as not harmful. They were seen as having some wisdom and what they gave was accepted. What's okay to view on TV or in a theater would have shocked some people if that came into their house in the 50s or 60s. Now it's accepted. How we work has been changed by the world. And we don't work as unto God anymore. We work as, well, I think that's all that they should expect from me. How about the care of our neighbors? We have changed on that. We have no longer become so concerned about our the care for our neighbors. In fact, who is my neighbor? We may Some people may say. And we've lost the teachings that Jesus had about who is my neighbor because people have crept into the church and have altered our viewpoint. No, just take care of yourself. Just have your own things. You don't need to be out there taking care of anyone else. Make sure that you're taken care of. And I wrote this down last and you keep on going with this. But this is my last one. People have crept into the church and told the church that you need to be more open-minded. You've been too closed about certain things and that has distanced the world from coming into the church. You need to have more of an open mind. You need to accept some of these things. The world has changed. It's not like it was when Jesus was here. This is what got Jude so very upset is that people were sneaking into the church passing themselves off as not harmful, not a threat, having some wisdom and slipping this into the people in the church. And little by little, 
we let some things go. So much so that people now stand with some of these people. They have pulled them over to their side. This is what Jude was concerned about. They have crept in. They stayed kind of under the surface. They were hazards, but they stayed under the surface. You couldn't see them. And then you came upon them. But what happened was that some of the people decided to side with these folks and to go down the way that they have done it. Some of these people that have crept into the church are members of the media that people in the church invite into their home every night to speak to them about how they should feel about things that are going on in the world. Some of these people are politicians because they're of their affiliation with a particular party. They are accepted for the things that they will say and the wisdom that they will give regardless of how it stacks up against the Word of God. Some of these people are religious people. They go to church. They seem to have something to say. But they've compromised the word of God. But because they have large crowds, because they have great influence, we have yielded to them and decided, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe this is the way that I should go. These folks have crept in Jude saw this as extremely urgent and it got him from just a place of I need to write them a letter and encourage them on their faith to the part of holy cow I need to warn them about what's going on because they are sailing into some very dangerous waters and they don't even realize it. And as much as it was bad in his day it is bad in ours and a prophecy that was given to Enoch all those years ago had application in Jude's day and still has application in our day. Because if you speak a word of prophecy and say it exactly the way God said, it will have application wherever God intended it to be. If you begin to take that prophecy and change it, it won't have the power. I said over these last, last couple of weeks getting ready for some of the things, again, I thought I was going to have more time to get into the into the prophet's ministry, I was taking my time with it, and I had it es- escalated up higher and began to listen to him. And I became incredibly disappointed with how many prophets teach and don't prophesy. And I was think- taken back to the time when Brother Hagin, and I can't remember all the details of this. I have to find him tell it. I'm sure he's told it in some other places. I remember him telling it in, when we were in school. But he was called to both, to be a teacher and to be a prophet. But I remember one time he shared a story that he was rebuked of the Lord to the point that he said his very life was in danger because he was ignoring the prophet ministry and favoring the teaching ministry. And he needed to not do that. He needed to walk in the office of the prophet and the teacher, but not to the neglect of the office of the prophet. When you get in the office of the prophet, you don't teach. You declare exactly what God said. So I was listening to a bunch of different different ones, 
and amazed at how many of them declared that God spoke a word to them, but I never heard it. They taught the thing. Now, if they were a teacher, an apostle, pastor, something along, you could go ahead and you can get away with that. But as a prophet, you cannot. Because a prophet is not there to explain the word. He's there to declare it. We need prophets in this day. Because the prophets will declare to us the things that are going on. When we get here on Sunday, we're going to be talking about what we are to do when we hear the words of a prophet. Because sometimes the church gets the idea that, well, the prophet has spoken, therefore it shall be. And I'm not going to give you my opinion on that particular topic. I'm going to give you what the Word of God says about it. And it's real clear. And we'll show you some of that stuff on on Sunday. Father, we thank you for the power of the Word that comes through prophecy. That something that was spoken so many thousands of years ago could have application in Jude's day and still have application in ours. When you speak something, you carefully craft every word, every phrase, everything that is done, and everything that is said. And if your prophets will listen, follow along with what you said, then their words will have great power in the body to help bring it to a place of prosperity and that the thing that we do with the word will prosper. It will succeed in what it was intended to do. I thank you that your words that come through your prophets can expose those hidden hazards, can point us to things that we've accepted that we should not, things that we need to purge from our life. The enemy has successfully attached anchors to us. And we just don't know that they are. But your words of prophecy to your prophets will help cut through this. And I thank you for the prophets in our day. And Father, you would give them clarity to speak to us for we need to hear their words because their words are your words. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.